We're back in Matthew 5, and I was very grateful for Ian's intro last week. I'd not heard it before, expressed as the beautiful attitudes. Because I don't know about you, but beatitude is a really odd word. <laughs> and it's not a Bible word. It might, it might be the, in the title in your Bible, but not necessarily, that's not part of the original text. So correct me if I'm wrong, somebody, but I don't think it's a Bible word. And when I looked it up, I didn't get much help other than it comes from Latin and it has something to do with um, the word blessed, which obviously is how it's introduced in each verse. Now that the word's kind of present in each verse. So it means something like blessed be, the Beatitudes. So I loved Ian's um, title as the beautiful attitudes. What I was going to say was the be attitudes because it's an attitude it's about attitudes that we have it's the way we should be take your pick um i also appreciated the point that ian made that i hadn't noticed before i don't think and it's about how that there is a progression of these uh, instructions from the lord and I, I, in my prayer i talk i talked about a manifesto <laughs> And we're hearing a lot about manifestos, aren't we? And don't really know what that word means either, to be honest. But it's almost like, um, I think David, in his announcements, talked about the Beatitudes as being the opening words of the Lord. It's early in his ministry, and he's kind of laying it out. This is what um, really life with God at its centre should be like. Um, but Ian was saying, if you look out for it, you might see a progression through the list of eight things and how the one builds on the next, sorry, one builds on the previous. Some might remember a brother called Lindsay Prasher. Lindsay was George's older brother, uh, George being in our assembly for many years. Um, and we were down on the south coast in Port Slade Assembly when Lindsay was there, and he had a, a very gifted speaker, but very unusual. He always had something kind of off the wall, you know. Well, I've never looked at it like that before. And I remember him giving a, a ministry on the Beatitudes and his encouragement, and I pass it on to you because I did it and got benefit from it. It was like homework. He said, go through the Beatitudes and paraphrase them. Well, that means put them into your own words, write them down and put them into your own words. You kind of think, well, why would I do that? You know, it's God's word. Well, I'm sure I shouldn't really interfere with it, which is true. And he wasn't saying that by putting it into our own words, we could somehow improve it. Of course not. But by putting it into our own words, then maybe it helps us think about what was behind what the Lord Jesus was saying. And... Um, I had a rummage on my computer and I found a Stevie spreadsheet, which is um, the Beatitudes in my own words. And I'm not, I'm not going to read it to you because that would kind of maybe spoil your homework. I just encourage you to, maybe even as we go through it each week, to, to try and write it out in your own words with the objective of just um, getting a bit deeper into it. But Ian's point about a sequence, a development through the, the different eight steps. Here's what I came up with from that point of view. And 
take it or leave it. Number one is poor in spirit, um, God dependent. That's the first first step. Second one, um, those who mourn. We were focused focused on sin. That was Giles's uh, message. Perspective, seeing things from God's holy perspective. The meek, humility, that's about attitude. Philippians 2, it's all about the attitude of the Lord Jesus. So maybe we're progressing from recognizing our dependence on God, having a a holy perspective, uh, allowing that to impact our attitude. The next one is hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's aspiration. It's where we want to go in our spiritual lives, our our diet, how we want to develop. And then um, merciful, which is today. I think it's about relationships. It's about how we interact with each other. Um, The pure in heart motivation. Uh, Peacemakers. (coughs) Maybe godliness. And those who are persecuted, farsightedness, seeing beyond what's going on in the current. So just a, a kind of progression, the way it appealed to me. Let's read it, Matthew chapter 5, verse, we'll read, we'll read the whole thing, verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That's our verse for today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Is there any more we can say about this word blessed? And I think there is. (laughs) Isn't it great when you kind of continually revisit the same word and we're forced to do that in this study and just scratch the surface a little bit more and, and see what comes. I discovered that the word is used 50 times in the New Testament. And I had a quick rummage around, you know, are there any there that would stand out? And uh, it took me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we've been in we've been in Timothy in our discussions, or we've been in Titus, haven't we? Um, the book of Timothy, first first letter of Paul to Timothy, I would describe it as a, a thesis on godliness. In, in uh, 1 Timothy 3 and 16, an, an easy verse to remember, 3 and 16, he says, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. 
It's talking about the Lord Jesus. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up to glory. And it's the, the context of those verses are in and around instructions for overseers and deacons. And not just overseers and deacons, but behaviour of anyone who's in a church. And it's about godliness. It's aspiring towards godliness. So that's the, the context. Well, how do we aspire towards godliness? Well, we need to understand what God's like and imitate it. Go to uh, chapter 6 and verse 12. Coming to the end of his thesis on godliness. Um, and Paul says to Timothy, if you like, his um, successor in many ways to... Um, some of the work that Paul was doing as he was bracing himself to uh, be taken away from the world and into glory in verse 13 sorry verse 12 and I, I won't read the whole thing but starting in verse 12 take hold of the eternal life to which you are called I charge you verse 14 to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed, there's the word. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and whose lives and who lives in uncomparable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Amen. And we've we've learned that blessed means happy. God is a happy God. I, I don't know about you, but that's not a regular thought in my mind when I think about God. We default to his holiness, his righteousness, his love, of course. But the kind of joy and happiness that the Lord was outlining in his manifesto that should be the experience of people who have God at their centre, the centre of their lives, um, their lives would be characterised by happiness. And part of being godly is to have that sense of happiness. Um, one thing, one commentator I, I noticed said, God is rich in happiness. So let's go to verse 7 of Matthew 5. Rich in happiness are the merciful. So we need to understand what merciful means. Nathan gave it to us in, our, um, in his Thanksgiving this morning about mercy not getting what we deserve. So if I'm judged to have done something wrong and found to be guilty and as a punishment that's what I deserve mercy is when I don't get that punishment grace complementary thing is getting what we don't deserve it's undeserved favour so these two really fundamental principles in, in the gospel, in the Christian way in, in the New Testament fundamental Characteristics of God is that he shows mercy, doesn't give us what we deserve, and he shows grace. He gives us things 
wonderful things that, that we don't deserve. I want to say, though, that mercy is not necessarily just about acting on a judgment. I think it, it's also uh, can be demonstrated in simply showing acts of kindness. So sometimes that word mercy is translated compassion. And okay, you might, you might say a judge can show compassion on someone who's guilty and, and deserves some kind of punishment. But also someone who's just struggling in life and needs help. And it's nothing to do with whether they've done wrong or right, or whether they're guilty or not guilty. There is a sense of showing mercy or compassion on those Actually, um, our word is not mercy, it's merciful. <laughs> Literally, um, as you'd expect, full of mercy. And it's only found in two places. The mercy, mercy is found 50 places. This variation, merciful, is found twice. One in Matthew 5 and the other in Hebrews 12. So let's go to Hebrews 12. And it's talking about the Lord Jesus in his role as our great high priest. And in that, he is full of mercy. Hebrews 2 and 17. For this reason, he, that's the Lord Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted i think that last expression the lord jesus being qualified to help those who are being tempted or that means to help those who are under trial under suffering not just being tempted to do something they shouldn't do but are um, struggling because they live in a world that's damaged by sin um, it says verse 18 that he is able to help those who are in that situation why is he able to help us when we're in that situation because he's been made like us in every way brings another dimension to mercy, which is empathy. I think I'm right in saying that sympathy is kind, kind of showing um, kindness and interest, love, care, concern for someone who's struggling. That's sympathy. We know about that. Empathy brings a new dimension to that, and it, it's when we've been there ourselves, so we can empathise we know what it's like to be bereaved because we've been bereaved ourselves and it qualifies us in a special way to be able to draw close. So there's an element of, in being merciful, uh, of empathy as well. That's drawing alongside the person who we're showing mercy to or compassion towards and we're based on our own experience, able to help them. I was thinking that's 
so important, isn't it, in our witness. Um, when we accept the Lord Jesus as our Saviour, one of the prerequisite processes is that we become aware that we need to be saved. So, if we have a friend or a relative who's burdened by sin, that's the Holy Spirit stirring their hearts, we've been there. And it gives us confidence to, to show empathy, compassion, and to help them. And that's perhaps a role that we can, we can play, and in a much broader and fuller extent, that's what Hebrews 2 teaches us about the Lord Jesus because of his humanity. The subject of mercy takes me to another scripture that's very well known, Micah 6, verse 8. Um, it's actually one of my dad's favourite verses. I talk about him a lot, don't I? But he, he, um, he seemed to somehow understand this verse. And I think it's a word to Micah, the prophet. Not necessarily through Micah, but to Micah. That's how I read it anyway. So God's saying to Micah, He, that's God, has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I have a bit of a confession to make here because I, I did a talk on, on this verse very recently and I'm looking through my notes and I can't decide whether it was at Myanmar or in Manchester. So if you heard what comes next already, then just take it as um, confirmation or reinforcement of the same point. Um, but it's a, it's a verse that's so loaded with just really helpful and challenging things. So here's what God requires of us and he's showed us what's required of us and that points us to the Lord. So we'll, we'll look for these qualities in the Lord in a second. But to act justly, I think, it's about our behavior and about our integrity. So we do things because they're the right thing to do. We act justly. Act, it's about action. We love mercy. And it's to delight in showing kindness. Another verse translates it loving kindness. Um, and also, that's ourselves, to delight in the opportunity to show mercy or loving kindness to those who need it. But also to delight when we see it happening in others as well. So we can so enjoy observing the godliness of our brothers and sisters as they demonstrate being merciful. And then to walk humbly with your God. Um, this verse in, I, in Jeremiah, we had it last week, it's Jeremiah 33 and 3. Uh, the Lord to Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. It's about a prophet's, in this case Jeremiah's, intimate relationship with God, being at home with God. Let's briefly look at how God has shown us these things, including mercy, very quickly 
in uh, an occasion in the life of the Lord. So let's go to John 7 and verse 53. It's a very uh, familiar passage. I'll read it really quickly. And look out for the three things, and I'll give you a clue. Walking humbly with his God comes first in this um, narrative. So, John seven fifty three. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat to teach them, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. He made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and he came down at dawn. That's him walking humbly with his God. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is in the face of the Pharisees who were looking to trip him, looking to to test him and just see great wisdom and integrity in his actions. There's no eye contact, he's looking down, he's not looking at the woman in a kind of accusative way, he's not looking at the people in an accusative way and one by one, curiously starting with the older, oldest it says, they all move away and then there's only him left and of course the statement is that him who is who is without sin cast the first stone. What amazing wisdom and integrity the Lord showed. And in the process kind of turn those um, men who were accusing the woman, he, they, he turned their thoughts in an introspective kind of way, started to think about themselves, examine themselves, and one by one they all went away. What an amazing impact. And it's his wisdom and it's his integrity. And then, of course, when he stands up and the woman's there alone and they've all gone. And is there no one here to condemn you? No, she says, no, sir. Then neither do I. Just a wonderful act of mercy. Go and leave your life of sin. Is there ever circumstances where it's inappropriate? To show mercy? That's an interesting question. I think, I think the answer is there are. And I can think of a few. When you're a dad or a mum and your kids are naughty and we just say, well, never mind, you know, when they're, when they're naughty, we just continually kind of
kind of let them off the hook. And there is an element of that, isn't there, in, in showing mercy. They never learn. <laughs> so perhaps there is a time, and this is about integrity, and it's about acting justly, when being merciful, if it means letting them off the hook, isn't the appropriate action. It's kind of a, um, an element of discipline to make the person who you have authority over realize um, that what they're doing or what they've done is wrong. Perhaps the, the same applies in a work context. You know, if someone's uh, working for me and, and fiddles their expenses, do I let them carry on filling their expenses? Of course not. You get to a point where um, there's almost a bit of tension, isn't there, between acting justly um, and showing mercy. Um, overseers, there's a, a sense in which overseers have a authority and responsibility in the church. And we have the instruction, we get it from Hebrews chapter 13, that we have to give an account for the people in the church and the way we encourage them and the way we upheld the holiness of God in his church. So maybe there's a situation there too where mercy perhaps is the, is the first port of call, maybe even the second port of call, but um, perhaps it's not always appropriate. I think the, the opposite to um, being merciful is to be legalistic. And it's so that the Lord had the right to stone the woman and he chose not to do it. That was the law. Um, I'm very relieved about that because it means that we have license to exercise mercy. It's a really helpful verse in Romans 12. It's Romans 12 and 17. It's in the, the context is in our discipleship, our commitment to God, but in our relationships with each other. And actually our love, our, it's actually brother, brotherly and sisterly affection for each other. That's really what Romans 12 is about. And it says in verse 17, do not pay, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it can depend on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. I was thinking maybe being merciful is a bit of a contradiction, because is mercy justice? <laughs> um, if you let someone off, where's the justice in that? And that verse teaches me that um, ultimately, God in his authority will bring about justice and when it's appropriate. In the meantime, it's for me to exercise mercy and not judgment or punishment as verse um, Romans 12 says. So that's something for us to think about. Blessed are the merciful for they will um, be shown mercy. It's the, the punchline of, of the verse. And it's quite simple, isn't it? Um, what's that expression, do as you would be done by? 
Um, if you're recognized as someone who is merciful and shows mercy, then perhaps when you're in a situation where that's what you need, then that's what you'll get. Um, David Woods took us to Matthew 18 recently in a, a thought for the week, and it's the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. So a servant owed his master a, a fortune, his master let him off, and then he goes to his own servant who owes him a small amount, and he throws him in prison till he can pay. And it says, when the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. So I think it's I think it's quite compelling the thought that one day we will stand before God, not just overseers as to how they um, behaved, but we all will and give an account. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus as our Saviour, it's the judgment seat of Christ. It's about what we did for him in our lives. It's not about um, whether we've earned our way to heaven or not. It's just about how effective our service has been. And that has to be a weight there, doesn't there, as to um, how we behaved in our Christian lives. I'd just like to leave you with Lamentations 3 and 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions, that's his mercy, his loving affection, his loving kindness, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you.